The rest of us here will be in Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. I'm going to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. I'd like to read the text before we begin. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 25. So please grab a Bible, your smartphone, whatever is smart. If you've got somebody sitting next to you that can recite the Bible, that's good. The Apostle Paul, chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one another, one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Ephesians chapter 4. I recently read about research that neuroscientists had done at Temple University School of Medicine, and they focused on what happens when people lie. And they discovered that it takes more brain energy to lie than it does to tell the truth. Participants in this group were divided into two groups. One group were given a toy gun, and they were uh, expected to shoot their toy gun, and then they were to deny later, lie that they ever did it. Okay, that was their assignment. The second group was given the assignment to observe this situation, And then when they were asked to recite what happened and tell what happened, they were to tell the truth. By using an MRI, I didn't know they could do this, the researchers were able to track brain activity. This brain imaging technology identified that those who lied used seven areas of their brain to make it happen. And those who told the truth only used four areas of their brain. Researchers tell us that lying sparks activity deep in the limbic system, the center of the emotion and self-preservation. The lie gathers support from the memory banks in both left and right temporal lobes and jumps to the frontal cortex where a decision is made to suppress what is known to be true. Some believe that this kind of a test will one day replace the polygraph or a lie detector. And you may know that a polygraph or a lie detector, as we often use it, uh, focuses on the, the, uh, the heart rate and the breathing rate. Identifying brain activity um, by using brain imaging and tracking the brain could be much more effective in lie detecting, just in case you wondered. The point is, it takes a lot more effort to lie than it tells to tell the truth. When we try to cover up our mistakes, um, 
when we try to keep people from finding out what really happened or finding out the truth. When people lie about their families or lie to their families or for their families, it takes a lot of effort. And when they lie to put a spin on the truth and when they um, try to cover up their secret sins, it can be exhausting. Most importantly, it just dishonors God who made us for truth. In the book of Ephesians, we have uh, been tracking the, um, the first three chapters, you remember, focused on our identity, our ID, who we are in Christ, what has been given to us, the grace we've experienced, the inheritance, the gift of eternal life, that we have redemption, that we have forgiveness of sins, that we were given the Holy Spirit and sealed in the Holy Spirit. And we were given every spiritual blessing. We have been given the resources for a new life. That's what the Apostle Paul has been building here. And he doesn't really give us any instructions until we get to chapter 4. And then he begins to show the implications of what, what it means that we are new creatures in Christ. And Uh, that, That we are to walk in the hope of our calling. This is who we are. This is who we were called to be. Now we need to live it out. And that's our focus now. And I said that this would build up slowly. Here we are in verse 25. We've had 24 verses in chapter 4. And it's been kind of slow. But now it's going to come quick. It's going to come rapid fire on instruction for us. So here we go. In verse 25, if you follow on your outline, we see... uh, We are to speak truthfully, not deceptively. It maybe seems obvious. We are to speak truthfully. Uh, Falsehood is to be put off. Verse 25, therefore, each of you, to every follower of Christ, Paul writes, you must put off uh, falsehood. And let me just remind you uh, one more thing in Ephesians chapter 4. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read verse, I'm going to go back. I'm going to read the verses right before our passage today, verses 22 through 24. And here's what Paul says. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the old you, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness in holiness. So Paul has had this theme of putting off something and putting on something. To put off that which is old, the old nature, that old capacity. And, and let me just remind you, you still have it. The believer has two natures. We focused on this last week. The unbeliever has one nature, one capacity, and it's really going to be self-focused. It's, it does not have the capacity to please God, Okay. They can do nice things. They can be nice to people. That doesn't get them to heaven. They don't have a new ability, a new nature to be connected to God. They are disconnected, okay? A believer has two natures. And we like that. We like the new part. We wish that in the new part, we always had all the bad stuff gone, but they're both there. You have an old nature and you have a new nature. You have a capacity to be selfish and self-centered just like if you, and you have the capacity, just like before. And you have the capacity to please God and to honor Him and to live 
in that new capacity, in that new creation, as a new creation in Christ. So he says in verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off the falsehood. You've got to take it off. Okay? It's like taking off the dirty underwear you've been wearing for seven days. Get rid of it. doesn't fit here. You are something new and fresh. Put it off. Uh, falsehood is not fitting for a a life who follows Jesus. Jesus is not about lying anywhere. Jesus is a truth teller. And, the, and John uh, chapter 14 verse 6 says that he is the way and the truth and the life. And he following him and coming to him by faith is, is how we have access to God. He we follow Jesus, we follow in the steps of truth. John eight thirty one and 32, Jesus told those who were listening, if you continue in my word, then you will know the truth, and you will really be my disciples indeed. And the truth will set you free. That's the path, that's the course that Jesus invites us to take. Lying and falsehood, on the other hand, have a totally different source. Definitely not in Jesus. John 8, 44. Jesus spoke these words to the religious leader. He said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the source of falsehood. The enemy he came to Eve right off in chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and he was defaming and dishonoring God, and he was misquoting God's word right off the bat for the purpose of deceiving Eve so that she had a wrong view of God. Um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. One of the Ten Commandments, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Um, written to Moses in the 15th century before Christ. It's lying destroys family. It ruins marriages. It creates distrust in the workplace, in the government, and even in a sales transaction. It promotes distrust when we don't tell the truth. Or when anyone does not speak the truth. On the other hand, honesty in relationships is to be embraced. Look at 25 again. And speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. God's intention that we, as Christ followers, tell the truth. That's the norm. That's, we speak truth. We are honest. We are people of integrity. Covering up the truth leads us down a dark path. Jesus is the light of the world, and falsehood is covered with darkness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Just a reminder, we looked at this a couple of weeks back. It said, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Our relationships require truthfulness. Truthfulness in our families, truthfulness in our marriages, Truthfulness in the body of Christ, and that promotes health. 
You know, if we know the right, if we know what is reality, we can respond correctly. Sometimes speaking the truth in love means you've got to tell me that I'm out of line. Sometimes speaking the truth means I need to love you and admonish you. I can be kind about it, but I need to tell you the truth so you know and you can adjust. Um, but we need to speak the truth in love. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus said these words. Uh, he was praying, and he was praying for those who would follow him. He was praying for us. And he said to the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. And God's design is, is that we, we get our lives aligned with truth. We get our, lines, our lives aligned with him. And we learn to live it out. We, we, need to, we need to embrace it. We, we need to know what it is when it comes to God's word. And then we need to bring our lives underneath that and to live in consistency with truth. Um, so next we're going to talk about anger. This is exciting. Verses 26 and 27. Handle, handle your anger appropriately. In verse 26, learn to discern the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous Anger. And Paul writes, in your anger, do not sin. And that's, not, that's really important, I think, that he said it that way. Because it, it, it lets us know that not all anger is sin. That's good, because we're pretty angry people sometimes. In your anger, you're going to experience anger. That's normal. In fact, you were created in the image of God, and God has anger, and his anger is always righteous. That's a big difference between his anger and my anger. Sometimes my anger is righteous because I'm designed like him. God can be angry at sin and injustice. I can be angry at sin and injustice. It's not supposed to rule my life, by the way. If it does, it's probably slipped over into something else. It's become, it's become human anger. Learn to discern which things are righteous anger and which things are unrighteous. Um, this is important. Uh, Matthew five twenty one and 22, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, and so he's going to go back and he's going to quote something from the Old Testament. He's going to quote one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's a good idea. Don't murder. Don't murder your mate, you know, even when you feel like it, okay? Don't murder. By the way, this is a command, and it can be stated, thou shalt not kill. This is a command, but it refers to premeditated murder. It doesn't refer to, and I'm just a little aside here, it doesn't refer to capital punishment. If there's a just cause, it doesn't refer to that. If there is such a thing as a just war, it does not refer to death and war. Although war gets really crazy. But this is premeditated murder. Thou shalt not. Verse 22, but Jesus raises the bar. It's not just a physical act of taking one's life. I tell you the truth. Anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, this isn't just, you know, an emotional experience. I'm feeling angry with you. This is settled anger. And what's Jesus's point here? This is sin, and it is wrong. 
And just like any sin, any sin could bring is enough to send one unbeliever to judgment, eternal condemnation. It's not saying if you ever get angry, you can't be forgiven and you're not going to heaven. It doesn't say that. But Jesus is teaching about how serious anger is. Um, Verse 26, learn to handle anger issues quickly. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That's the Jewish concept of dealing with things a day at a time. Don't let this carry over into your life. You need to deal with anger. It's going to cause you great difficulties, great pain. It's going to dishonor God. So learn to handle it quickly. Um, we are human, we get angry, but we need to handle anger. Our anger needs to come under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We need to seek to resolve our anger with God and with others. We don't let the sun go down. We don't let it fester. We don't let it damage our relationships. We don't let it damage our relationship with God, and we don't let it damage the, the reputation of Jesus Christ as, as, a, as we are Christ's followers. Um, it's, it seems like people respond to, I've seen Christians respond, the Christian community respond to anger in a couple of different ways in these days. When I came to faith, we were sort of coming out of uh, some strong legalism in the 1970s, to, to date myself here. And uh, I saw a lot of Christians just in total denial. I'm not angry. What do you mean? I'm not angry. And there was this view that anger is sin and all anger is wrong. And therefore, I'm not angry. That's how people lived. I saw a lot of Christians live that way. Now I see sort of the opposite. The pendulum's gone to the other side. You've got Christians saying whatever they think, however they feel, they're angry. They let the whole world know what they have a right to which is not logical, uh, but that's what I've seen happen. Um, We need to learn to handle anger appropriately and quickly. James 1, 19, verses 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, James writes, uh, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. This this should uh, lead our behavior. These... We're going to be angry, uh, but be quick to listen. It's probably why God gave us two ears and only one mouth. You know, so that we could listen well. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Process. Slow to become angry. Do I really have a reason to become angry? If I do, what steps will I take then? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. 99.9% of my anger usually is what I would call human anger. Now sometimes I have a, I start out with a, maybe a righteous anger where something is, not, something is unjust. Uh, sin that's terrible, I can be angry about it. And if it hangs around very long, if I begin to get angry at someone, 
Usually when I get angry, it's just my rights are violated and they're, most of them are pretty silly. You know, I just feel like this is not fair and I just speak out and the danger is, is hurting somebody. Um, but we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Our anger doesn't produce. This is the kind of thing, as a brand new follower of Christ, I, w- I was a really angry person before. And as a brand new follower of Christ, when I learned this verse, just to think, I am working against God. I'm just shutting down the Holy Spirit's work in my life when I become angry. I can't make disciples. I can't honor him. How long am I going to hang out here? And it, it, it's the kind of thing that helps us process and come to, you know, I, I need, to, need to do something. I need to deal with this. I need to be honest with God. And it gets worse, verse 27. Don't allow Satan to move into your life through anger. Verse 27 says, and do not give the devil a foothold. A foothold is an entry point, an entry point into your life. It is a place to stand. Uh, The devil here refers to Satan, the evil one. Unresolved anger allows the devil or his demons... Entry into some areas of our lives. Now, some people don't even believe in the devil, and so, guys, this isn't a problem. This is spiritual warfare. This is an open door to invite a challenge from the enemy. I don't need this, you know? I already got enough problems in my life without inviting the enemy to come in and camp out. Um, And, you know, think about the implications of anger. Parents, you think you can cover from your kids that you're angry? I don't think so. They grow up with that. You can, just your anger, if it's not dealt with, you know, you're inviting the enemy into your home. This is serious. Nothing to do with it sometimes. So, this is serious. We have to deal with our anger. If I need to apologize to God and keep a short accounts with God, if I need to confess my sin to God, the great thing is he will forgive and purify me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness right on the spot. I fall down and need to get back up. If I've offended uh, my wife or my kids or a coworker, I need to just be honest and say, hey, I blew it. I was... I, I was that was a stupid mistake. I was angry. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? We can do that. If we don't, consider you've just given an invitation to your enemy. Thirdly, verse uh, 28, do not steal. Instead, work to contribute to those in need. Don't steal. Okay, I know that's Christian. And instead, work so that we can contribute to those in need. Verse 28, stealing is not fitting for the Christ follower. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Now, certainly at the church of Ephesus, there were those who, before they came to faith, had stolen. Wasn't uncommon for slaves in certain situations to take from their masters, but this isn't just to a certain group of people. This is to the whole church, all of the believers. Stop it. Stop Taking what is not yours. Uh, 
One of the interesting things about stealing is God made a plan in the Old Testament. And let's look at that. Exodus 20, verse 15. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. Several things that that suggests. One, God honors private property. There is a place for private property. Um, America has been built on this concept that God instituted in the Old Testament with his people. It's okay to have boundaries on personal property. It's protected from theft in God's eyes. It's a violation when somebody takes something that's not theirs. This is American. Don't steal. John 10, verse 10. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's talking about the evil one. He's talking about the enemy here. That's the context. And he said the opposite. I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. The enemy wants to take. The enemy wants to steal. And Jesus has the opposite intention. He came for life so that we can experience it to the fullest. Now I have a surprise for you. Verse 28. We must work hard doing something useful with our own hands. Work is not a curse, but it is a blessing. I think American Christianity has this part confused. Work is not a curse. It is a blessing. Uh, It is good. God is a worker. He worked productively for six days. And then he took a day off. He didn't stop work after the creation. And he hasn't stopped work yet. He continues to work uh, to accomplish his his will to build his kingdom, to work out his plans through the lives of people. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God is a worker, and he created us in his image. When we are working, there is something God-like it about us when we're productive. And I'm not talking about being a workaholic or making work our God. I'm not your career, your God. I'm not talking about that. But being a worker is good. It's valued. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he says, and to make your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on any, anybody. A couple things here. Uh, by the way, working with your hands, that just means productive work. There's a lot of ways that we work. and we, have, we live in a society today that's very much on paper and very much inside of a computer, but that's working with your hands. Right on the keyboard. No, just any kind of work that's productive where we're producing something for others, for society... Um, verse 12, that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Our work and our attitudes and our reputation have a major impact on our world. Christians, you and I should have a major impact by the way we work. 
And that last so that you will not be dependent on anyone. That's about providing for yourself. Now we get that in, in America. We have this rugged individual, proud, we work hard, we pay our own way. Well, that's good because God wants us to provide for ourselves. The problem is, we think when we've done that, we're done, that that's success. I've, look, I paid my way. That's not what Christianity is about. Your work is to be a blessing. Work enables us to give to the Lord, provide for the needs of our family, and contribute to the needs of others. Look at verse 28. That they may have something to share with those in need. Work is not a curse. It is a blessing. When we're working and being productive in a sense, I mentioned already that we're, we have this God-like quality. Work is not about me and my money. The reason for work is more than just providing for me and my family. It's more than just working so you don't have to steal. It's more than that. This Christian perspective, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? Our work, first of all, is to bless God. Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It doesn't talk about work here. It just talks about your resources. How do you get your resources? You work. And then you take your resources, and part of what you do with them is you give. You give back to God. And sometimes, you know, if you're stingy with God, don't be surprised if God is stingy with you. And if you're gracious and generous with God, don't be surprised if God is generous with you. It's also in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, by the way, uh, which brings me to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there is a place for our work to provide so that we can bless God. It's a part of our worship. It's a part of our obedience as a Christ follower. Um, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, Will a man rob God? Yeah, sometimes. That wasn't God's intention. We're also to provide for our families. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so it's just like normal that we work so that we have enough to provide for our family members. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, Paul writes, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And so um, in the church, if somebody's not willing to work, they shouldn't be given money. Now, there are reasons why people can't work, and I understand that. Sometimes people are incapacitated. There's all kinds of reasons. But generally, it's normal that we work and we provide. Matthew 6.3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
Jesus assumed that his followers would give to the needy, would give to those who have need. So here's what I'm saying. This is normal, normal for a Christ follower. You work, you can work hard, you're productive, and you provide for yourself, and you provide for your family, and you provide for those in need, and you bless God with your resources. This is Christian. This is what makes Christianity different than everything else. American Christianity focuses, I think, a lot on providing for me and my family. And there's some generosity, and some followers of Christ are very generous, but I don't think it sinks down through the church. Um, This has always been distinctively Christian. To do more than just pay your way. It's American to pay your way. It's Christian to bless God and to meet needs of others outside of your family as well. We come to verses 29 and 30. Speak to build others up. This is about our speech, not to tear them down. Our speech is to be wholesome. Paul writes, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Unwholesome talk smells bad. It's bad breath. It is unhealthy. It is destructive. It is not helpful. It does not benefit anyone. In the ninth century, the writer of Proverbs wrote this. Proverbs chapter 8, 9, yeah. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance and behavior and perverse speech. That's unwholesome speech. Distortion of the truth. Um, Reckless people, angry people, people without self-control, hurt other people. I just jumped to Proverbs 12. Thank you. The words of the reckless. Reckless people pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. Reckless people are angry people without self-control in their speech. And they hurt people like the wounds of a stabbing. Sticks and stones will break our bones, but words will never hurt us. That's a lie. Words hurt. Verse 29, also, our speech is to be beneficial to others, but only what is helpful for the building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Our speech should be wholesome and healthy. It should promote life and not death. It should seek good and not evil. It should seek the best in others. It should focus on the needs of others, not on what is going to make me feel good after I've said it. You know, did I get my two cents in? Did I prove my point? Is that what this is about? Um, Proverbs 16, 24 says, Gracious words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Gracious words. Kind words that, that consider others, that cut people some slack, that show people favor, words of encouragement and appreciation. They have a powerful effect. They bring healing 
to the bones. Now, very early in our marriage, right after I became a follower of Christ, my wife gave me the assignment to memorize these, these verses. We did it together. Because we had a lot of negative talk with each other. We were highly critical, and I was king at sarcasm. My sarcasm was usually designed to come across as a little bit unsure of what I meant, and then the possibility of having a big hook that could be painful. And I just learned to communicate that way, and then we started running through the grid and to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. Only what's going to help each other. Sometimes that's really hard. But it's really changed the way we relate to each other. Not to mention our kids had to memorize this too. Each, at every phase, did we quote this. Um, Our speech should not bring pain to God, God's heart, in verse 31. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Because sometimes our words bring pain to God. He grieves. It hurts him to the core when we are abusive with our speech, when we dishonor people, when we tear them down, when we are mean in our words, when we lash out. When we belittle others, when we call people names, God's heart is grieved. He is pained. I don't know if you as a parent have ever seen, uh, observed your kids do something that caused you great pain. Well, we do things that causes God's heart great pain. And then it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit was given to every follower of Christ. He will be, if you are a follower of Christ, He will be present with you until the day of redemption, until the day Jesus comes back. And that's a reminder. Um, and having the Holy Spirit is a major change uh, for us. The old person and the new person. The old man and the new man. The old capacity and the new capacity. And with the Holy Spirit present, I have the resource, a person to help me live in the new capacity, to put on the new self. I'll be with you until the day of the redemption. Guess what? You don't deserve it. It's called grace. Your salvation is by grace through faith. And you're given the Holy Spirit And he's not jerked away just because you have a bad day. But he's there. Our sin causes him pain, but he's there. Day in and day out until the day of redemption. And the redemption is just one way to remind us of what he's done, what Christ has done for us. So there's a reason and a purpose to live for him. Okay, last one. Uh, Number five, focus on attitudes and actions that reflect Christ, 31 and 32. Focus on attitudes and actions that reflect Christ. And, you know, I said that these just come very fast, um, and they keep coming. A, uh, steer clear of angry, hurtful words and behavior. It's kind of a catch-all. Get rid of all bitterness, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. 
We are to get rid of this stuff. It is not appropriate for us as Christ followers. It confuses the message of good news and we come across more like bad news to our world. When we're bitter, when, we're, when we have rage, when we have anger, when we become violent, when we speak slander, um, we're going to go down through the list. The first one was bitterness. Bitterness is when anger is settled and it goes underground. It's like bathing in bile. That's kind of the word picture here. You go underground and you just bubble. And uh, it's stuck deep with set anger. And bitterness gone underground is just waiting to come up. And one of the ways it comes up is with rage and anger. Rage is the outburst. Rage is the explosion. It can be a spewing of words. Angry, hurtful words. Uh, anger here is not just the emotion. It's that settled anger that's stuck with you. Brawling is when anger um, turns into violence. It's abusive. It's, it's what happens in abusive settings when people become angry and they lash out and they hurt other people. Slander is speaking dishonestly about another person, not telling the truth. Malice is all about evil intentions. It's kind of a catch-all all here. And every form of malice, when, when your intentions are hurtful, when your intentions are evil and we're, just, we're to get rid of it. We're to be honest with God. One of the great things about the Bible is, as we give our life to this book, as we learn to read it, and we can just ask, go through a list like this and just ask God to check us out. Lord, how are we doing? Show me. And if there are just things that I need to deal with, I can just talk to God and I can just clear them up as I go, just day by day. You know, life is hard. We go through all kinds of things. And the great thing is God forgives and his word builds us up and fills our heart. Um, Verse 32, seek to reflect Jesus. Uh, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. And the idea is get rid of this stuff that we just talked about. Get rid of that list because we've got to make room for something better. We've got to make room for something new. We need to be kind. That is to be gentle. We need to extend grace uh, rather than skepticism. We need to be kind. We need to be gracious. It's an attitude. We need to be compassionate. That is tender-hearted. It's not hard-hearted. It's not becoming callous. Sometimes people get very calloused and they... They protect themselves, and they, they don't have a soft heart toward others. They have a barrier. I don't want to be hurt, so I'm just going to tough it out here. And, and, of course, that's danger because when we tough it out, we tend to be harsh because we're a little bit calloused. We're not tender-hearted. And lastly, we're to be forgiving. To forgive is to let go of your beef. It's to let go of your offense. It's to let go of the hurt and the pain. Isn't it amazing how we humans are that when somebody offends us, somebody hurts our feelings, we just like to think about it and just be reminded over and over again 
because we, the adrenaline cranks up in our system. And, oh, man, I'd like to get back. I'd like to do something. I'd like to fix this. I'd like to show that person. That doesn't really contribute to much of anything, except it's a little bit destructive. To forgive is to agree with God. It's to let it go. And we hear a lot about forgiveness in Christianity today and say you've got to forgive for yourself. The purpose of forgiveness is for you. It's true that there's a whole lot of things about if you don't forgive, it's going to affect you. And your system is going to turn in on you when you hold this stuff in. The most important reason to forgive is to do it for God. That's it. That's the most important. Yes, you're going to have benefits from it. Look what that passage says. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, Do you remember how God handled your sin? Do you remember Jesus being nailed to the cross? And he said, it is finished. You know, you didn't deserve that. That by grace you could be saved through faith. You didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be forgiven. But I'm going to be like Jesus when I forgive those who have wronged me. And that's my reason. That's my motivation. Because I'm dis- I want to be distinctly Christian. I want to be a Christ follower. So we've gone through a list here. The, the Christian life is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a new identity with new resources. And it's about living in the new lifestyle. Living in a new capacity. Using those resources so that the life reflects Jesus. That's why we're here. That's how we have an impact. And that's going to be the most rewarding life you could ever pick. Okay, let's stand together and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and your instruction, for your wisdom, for your encouragement for your admonishment, for pointing out the truth. God, examine our hearts today. Are we people of truth? Do we try to cover up the truth? Do we lie? Do we share false information so that we look good or something else looks good? Help us to be honest with you. Lord, help us to deal with our anger. Help us to identify, is our anger inappropriate? Help us to see when it is. Help us to be honest about that and admit it. If it's to you or if it's to someone we love, somebody we work with, show us. Lord, help us with our speech. It's so easy to be negative and critical and share things we don't like and what we don't like about people. Help us to be quiet when we need to be quiet. Help help us to listen when we need to listen. Help us to focus on things that are wholesome and building up others.
not things that are destructive and hurtful. Help us live in a way that reflects Jesus, that we might be kind, that we might be compassionate. And God, if there are people that we need to forgive, show us who they are. Help us to take those steps to release that. Not that we have to trust somebody who has hurt us. Not that we trust somebody immediately. But that we forgive. Because they are different. Help us to be people who learn to forgive over and over and over. For Jesus' sake, amen.